All right, well, good morning. I want to be mindful of our time, so let us get started here promptly. Welcome to Mayflower's series on the Apostles' Creed. This is our first week and our kickoff week. I should just mention that we are recording this, and it will be available for others to watch if they couldn't make it here today. So, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what that means for you, other than maybe don't reveal your innermost secrets. Um, <laughs> but as I go along, this will feel a bit like... Um, you know, I'm aiming for an undergraduate or even graduate classroom experience. So uh, as I say that, I say at any point during our time together today, if you have a question, if you have a thought, if something didn't land, if I'm being confusing, please pop your hand up, let me know. We can always stop. I'm happy to um, have any discussion or questions as we go along the way. But with that said, let's begin by what I think is appropriate, saying the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, we begin with our baptism interestingly enough, and this will make sense in just a bit. As we reflect on the Apostles' Creed, we actually start with our baptism, because the Christian faith is mysterious, but actually really quite simple. Uh, it's not like Scientology. I don't know if you know much about Scientology or other similar things. You enter in, and you get a little bit of knowledge, and then you have to level up, and then you get more of what it's about, and then you have to level up. By the way, each one of those is pretty expensive. Uh, and you don't get it until you've leveled up all the way. But that's not what Christianity is like. You start with your baptism, and you have the fullness of the faith, dying with Christ and rising with him through the Spirit to the glory of God. I mean, that's it. That's the Christian message. So discipleship is not about leveling up or getting new information. It's about living out this mystery that we receive from the very beginning in full. Or as the Apostle Paul writes, All things are yours, all belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. It's like this vast estate. Imagine you've inherited this giant chunk of land with different buildings and houses, different quarters, and it's yours. You own all of it, but you then have to go and study the documents, look at the land deeds. You've got to go explore the land that is already yours. And so similarly with our Christian faith, as we think theologically about what we believe, it doesn't add anything to it. You're not leveling up but it does add to your understanding of it. And the more we understand, the more we grasp of our faith, the happier we are. But I want to take you back to early Christian baptisms. So imagine with me, we're back in the early church. We're some early Christians, and they're preparing for baptism. 
Now, uh, in the early church, baptisms would generally happen on Easter Sunday. So uh, it's the night before, and we've stayed up all night. We've prepared for years. We've been studying. We've been uh, being mentored by other church leaders for uh, really up to three years. Many Christians would prepare for their baptism. And this night before Easter Sunday, we've prayed, we've read scripture, and at dawn, we're taken up, separated by men and women, we're taken out to an outdoor pool. We renounce Satan, and our entire bodies are then covered in oil, anointed, and we're led into the waters. Then each one of us is asked a question. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? I believe down the water and up you go do you believe in jesus christ the son of god who was born of the holy spirit and mary the virgin and was crucified under pontius pilate and was dead and buried and rose on the third day alive from the dead and ascended in the heavens and sits at the right hand of the father and will come to judge the living and the dead i believe into the water and out you come do you believe in the holy spirit and the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh. I believe, one final time, down and up. You come up out of that water, and then you are led into the congregation to join an Easter service that Sunday morning. Now this description I've just given you of baptisms comes from an early 3rd century document. So we're talking early 200s called the apostolic tradition. Now, those words of baptism probably sounded familiar to you, right? These are, you know, sound very similar to the Apostles' Creed. It actually gets at the ancient roots of the Apostles' Creed. It was used in baptism. It was a pledge of allegiance to the God of the gospel. And every time we say the Apostles' Creed, we're going back to our own baptism. We're brought right back there. Well, what is the Apostles' Creed? Interestingly, it's, it's a grassroots confession of faith. Like I said, it was the ancient church's response to the risen Lord Jesus, who commanded his disciples to go to all nations, making disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, some other creeds and historical church document came out of councils, uh, church structure, that sort of thing. This, is, this just emerged out of the early church's practices. As I say, it's a grassroots campaign. Now, later on, this idea, this lore, this legend developed in Christian history, in Christian thought, I should say, that each of the 12 apostles had written one line of the creed. In its original language, it can be broken up into 12. Uh, that's probably not true, but it gets at something really true. It gets at a deeper truth that the Apostles' Creed is rooted in the faith of the Apostles and ultimately to the words of Jesus Christ himself. The Apostles didn't write it, per se, but the individual statements of belief that we find in the Apostles' Creed, even some of the specific wording, can be found in some of the very best thinkers of the early church. Augustine, Irenaeus, Tertullian are important names here. These ideas that we say in the Apostles' Creed were present there in the early church from the very beginning. 
So it didn't invent or introduce anything new. The Apostles' Creed is really a summary or a compilation of the teaching of the Apostles, which is then a summary or teaching of the teaching of Scripture. Now, the earliest known mention of the expression, the Apostles' Creed, occurs in a letter that was written in Milan in AD 390. And what it was even talking about was not quite the full, fuller version we have today, but it was similar. Uh, actually, we heard that earlier in our story. Uh, sometimes it's called the Old Roman Creed that was used in baptisms. Um, the version that we use today was finalized probably around the year 600 AD, probably somewhere in France. The history is a little spotty there. But despite emerging a couple hundred years after the apostles, it's a statement of what Christians have believed from the beginning. Well, what does the Apostles' Creed do? I want to suggest for you that it has a couple objectives, or rather it achieves a couple of things. The first we might call informative or educational. As I mentioned, it was used by new believers to prepare for baptism. Uh, Christians, many of which were illiterate, by the way, would memorize it. They would use it as a guide to get into deeper, further Christian teaching. That way, every believer, as they memorized the Apostles' Creed, had a basic rubric to help them understand Scripture. as sort of a, a rule of faith or a theological lens to make sense of the whole of Scripture as they would hear it read in the gathering of believers or perhaps even read it themselves. So first, it was informative, educational. Second, it was performative. We might even say sacramental. As I mentioned, uh, its roots go back to the act of baptism itself. In other words, these words that we say in the Apostles' Creed, they have power. When you say them, you actually do something. Uh, we call it a performative act, right? Uh, when you say, I now christen this yacht the Queen Mary, by saying those words, you do something. Or you say, uh, I take you to be my lawfully wedded, lawfully wedded wife. It's a bad time to get tongue-tied, right? Uh, but by saying your marriage vows, you're not just saying syllables. You're doing something with those words. And when we say the Apostles' Creeds, we are doing something. This is what disciples say. It's a pledge. It's a commitment that forms us every time we say it. And it also catechizes us. Catechism is a different way to say formative teaching, often repetitive. I would add in the other creeds, the other ecumenical creeds, as well as the Apostles' Creed. So really the main historic creeds of the Christian faith contain the essence of Christian belief. Uh, they give us the first order truths right at the heart of our Christian faith. You know, there are first order truths... And then there are second and third and fourth order issues. You know, these are, these are things that Christians uh, can reasonably disagree about. So some of these second, third, or fourth order truths, or questions at least. Should babies be baptized or only adults? You know, ask a, an Anglican, ask a Baptist, and you're going to get two different answers. Ask people in this church, and you're actually going to get two different answers. Okay. How should the church be governed? With a series of bishops and priests or congregationally? <laughs> Ask different churches, you're going to get different answers. What's the relationship between God's sovereign rule over his creation and human free will? 
Ask different Christians and you're going to get a lot of different answers. That's a tricky one. But my point is those are second order, third order issues even, and Christians can disagree about them and we should dialogue as a family about those things. They matter. They can't just entirely set them aside, but they're not first order truths. The first order truths of Christianity, that which is not, are contained in the Apostles' Creed and the Church Creeds. C.S. Lewis gives us a helpful metaphor here in his book called Mere Christianity. You might think of the first order truths of the Christian faith as like a hallway, right, that has doors that open into several rooms. There's the Presbyterian room and the Roman Catholic room and the Lutheran room and the Congregationalist room and the Eastern Orthodox room and all the different rooms. Here's the thing, you can't really live in a hallway, right? You have to make up your mind about these second order's issues and, and enter into a space to live. You know, a room has a bed and a table and chairs and all, all that you need to live. But all the rooms must obey the rules of the house. And as C.S. Lewis says, when you've reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still waiting in the hall. If they are wrong, they need your prayers all the more. And if they are, the, if they are your enemies, then you're under orders to pray for them. This is one of the rules common to the whole house. So uh, one of the things that, the, as I say, the Apostles' Creed does is it catechizes us in those first order of issues, whereas we can disagree about those second order issues. But enough throat clearing and enough introduction. Let's get to it. You'll notice that the Apostles' Creed is broken up into three sections, Father, Son, Spirit. It's very Trinitarian, even from very early on. And so we'll start today with uh, the first section, the Father. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Well, let's start with that first word, I. Who's I? Who's speaking here? That's a pretty good question. And what I want to suggest to you is that when we say I in the Apostles' Creed, we place ourselves in the community, the community of believers in all times and all places over the last 2,000 years. When we say I, we place ourselves into the universal church. No matter what cultural or historical situation Christians have found themselves in, right? when a believer says, I believe, we enter into this transcendent community. A community that's bigger than our own culture, bigger than our own situation, our own framework, our own time and place. So in one sense, uh, the I puts you into the community. In another sense, I becomes we. When we say it, not just one, you know, you can definitely use it in your devotional life and privately, that's a good thing. But when we say it together as a church community, all of those I voices have an implied we. We believe. But then interestingly, that we becomes another I. As we enter into the corporate body of Christ, it becomes a corporate I. The singular body of Christ can speak of itself in the you know, singular I, and yet we all participate in that. This is what the church believes. This is what unites us, at least 
in belief, and as I say, in the act of doing it, to all other disciples in all times and places through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's move on to the next word, believe. Now, there's a problem we have in life. As knowers, just generally, this is a basic epistemic problem, you can't verify everything. In order to truly have knowledge, because of your limitedness as a creature, you're going to need to trust. You're going to need to trust, because you can't verify everything for yourselves. I mean, think about it. No one says, I don't believe what Google Maps is telling me until I scour every inch of land between here and my home. No, I mean, like, you know that it's going to turn right at the next intersection, and you, you, know, you follow its instructions. You trust the map even though you've not verified it for yourself. Or no one says, I can't believe that something happened unless I, I wish it myself. If someone tells me something happened, I'm just not going to believe it until I see it with my own two eyes. I mean, you couldn't do history. Uh, it, it would be paralyzing for you as a knower to have that sort of skepticism, right? You have to trust others. You're dependent on them. Now, of course, others can fail you. But we have to trust. You can't live without it. And so when you say, I believe, you are saying, I trust. We make a cry of trust to the Father, Son, and Spirit. We make a cry that relies on the trust, that relies on trust of our forebearers, of those who've come in the faith before us and who have handed us these teachings and these truths. It's an act of trust and faith in God and how he has worked in the world. Now, to be frank with you, there are times where I, I have doubts in my pocket when I say the Apostles' Creed, not that I don't believe it, but I wonder how some of these could be true. Raised from the dead? Really? I've never seen that. Have you? But just because I don't know how it could be true doesn't mean that it's not true, right? Huh. Uh, it's one thing to have a doubt in your pocket, to wonder how it could be true or to wrestle with it. It's another to cross your fingers. <laughs> and we don't, we, we don't want to cross our fingers. We want to leave room for doubt, even as we say these words, I believe. Because it starts with an act of trust. We don't say, well, let's just see if God really is true and trustworthy, and then I'll believe. You can't see if God is true and trustworthy until you believe and trust. That's how it works. Or, in other words, as the psalmist tells us, invites us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, think of it like uh, it's not an irrational leap. You're not supposed to believe things that just don't make sense at all. Uh, think of it maybe more like uh, a new dish, uh, a new restaurant that's open, and everyone tells you this place is amazing. You've got to try it. I've evangelized as a Chinese restaurant in town to many of you. It is amazing. You've got to try it. <laughs> um, the chef tells you, this is my masterpiece. Come eat. But you don't really know until you sit down and taste it for yourself. I believe in God the Creator. I believe in Jesus Christ, God become flesh. I believe in the Holy Spirit, who invisibly works to change things. How could, how could you know those things to be true? 
You can know them to be true if you know the God about whom they're speaking. So have faith and trust, and you'll see that God really is as good as his word. Now, we get to the next word, next phrase, I should say, God the Father. And we kind of run into a road in the rock here. Wait, God the Father? Is God male? Is God masculine? Well, I apologize, but I kind of don't. We have to go on an excursus. We're going to take a detour, not a detour, because it's very much related to the creed, but we got to wrestle with this question, because it's a bigger one than you might think. So let's take an excursus here, gendered language and talk of God. Uh, you could think of perhaps gendered pronouns, as he, often God in the tradition and in scripture is referred to as he, right? But let's focus on the word father. I think that's a great place for us to make sense of this. How can we say God the Father? So let's lay out the problem that we're looking at here. And we need to be brutally honest with ourselves. Christian history is at best mixed when it comes to women. There's an embarrassing number of misogynistic expressions. Now, there's also a hopeful number of, of cases where women are empowered, and, and I'd quickly add, by the way, it seems that the closer the church is connected to the actual text of scripture, the more empowered women have been in church history. But let's be clear, the track record's not super great, right? I, I won't belabor the point with quotes, uh, but trust me, they're really quite troubling, and many important Christian thinkers and leaders over the years have said terrible things about women. And this is particularly true in the West, where, uh, to, to paint with a broad stroke, but I think an accurate one, it seems that the church was far too often under the spell of Aristotle and his idea that a woman was an inverted man, inferior and less than fully human, weaker in mind, lacking in the capacity for intellect and virtue. That is Aristotelian thought, and the West has drunk too deeply from that well. So not only that, you have this problem of a very troubling track record there. Uh, the church, even the Israelites, you know, through much of the time of scripture and much of the church history, the context was one form of another or patriarchy, right? Uh, and that shaped the way that the church functioned. Although again, I want to say that the church was surprisingly counter-cultural, was revolutionary, especially in the early church, in the way women were handled in the way women were empowered, in the way women led the church. So is the Apostles' Creed just another example of this with its talk of father? Well, I want to get to the question that I think is at the heart of what's going on here. Is God male? Or at least is God masculine? Because there's a very, there's a very serious theological danger here if we don't get this cleared up. Uh, feminist theologian Mary Daly has famous, famously said, if God is male, then male is God. I mean, she, she fleshes that out in great detail in her books, but that is a very clear way to say it. If God is male, then that which is male is more divine or closer to the divine than female. 
If God is masculine and has ma predominantly masculine attributes, then to be masculine is to be more like God and to be feminine is to be less like God. You see how this works out? This is a really, really dangerous theological idea. If God is male or if God is mostly masculine, then patriarchy is justified. Then women are really inferior. Now, when you, when you say it this way, pretty much, well, most Christians would say, no, of course God is not male. There's an easy answer here. The easy answer goes something like this. Male and female is a created reality, right? God created them male and female in his image. In his image, he created them, Genesis chapter 1. This idea of, of, of uh, you know, being gendered is something we see in the animal kingdom, in the human realm. It is a created reality. Only creatures have it. The creator doesn't. So when we speak of God with gendered terms and gendered words, so the story goes, we see that we are using our limited creaturely language. We don't have another way to speak except as creatures, right? So we speak truthfully when we call God Father or when we use a, a feminine metaphor of God, but we only speak partially. Our language always falls short and breaks down before it fully captures God because he's not a creature. He's unlike us in important ways. Now that's a good line. Everything that was just said there I think is true and uh, worth fighting for. God is not male. But that doesn't really get us to the root of the problem because it's easy to deny that God is male and then for us to subtly function and think and act, maybe not even realizing it, like he is male or maybe more masculine than feminine. So even if you, you know, you're pressed on the point and say, is God male? You say, no, 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 no. But the answer to that is not so much found in the response to that question. It's found in how the church functions. It's found in how we think and act and treat women and men. And when you get down to that level of examination, <sighs> I wonder if we struggle in the church more than we'd like to admit with this idea that maybe we've seeped in a concept that God is male or more masculine to some degree or another. I said this already. Uh, subtly, do we deny that we deny? I think sometimes we might. Henry. <laughs> you know, Henry said, there is this issue that Jesus frequently refers to God as Abba. And I said, don't steal my thunder. Uh, I'm headed there. That's a great point. Yep, I'm just setting up the problem, right? We're getting there. I appreciate it. You see where I'm going? Good. Do scripture and tradition present God as male? Now, this is an interesting question. Does the Bible present God as male or masculine? And you'll find today that there are some pretty fringe, but it, it may be extreme, but there are some very conservative Christians who would say yes. And then there are some uh, very more extreme, like feminist theologians who would say yes, uh, but for very different reasons, or at least with a very different 
understanding of what that is. Someone say, yes, God is male, and that's good. Someone say, yes, God is male, and should we, we should reject it all. So I say this to say there is scholarship that says it seems like uh, maybe God is presented as male in our Christian scriptures and also perhaps in our tradition such as the Apostles' Creed. Now we do have masculine language. I think we just need to openly admit that most of the language of God, most of the language we use to speak of God in scripture is male in some way or masculine in some way arguably. Um, some metaphors might be a little more neutral, but at least the pronouns are there, and to speak of God as Father is an important part. Now, there are some important exceptions to this. Uh, Jesus talks about him spreading his wing, like a mother hen spreads her wing over, his ch over chicks. That's how God works in one of the metaphors. In Isaiah, God is like a nursing mother, to his people. It's a very feminine, female imagery, right? And even the imagery of providing bread, you know, give us this day our daily bread, or being provided bread in the desert, manna from heaven with God's people, the Israelites. In that culture, providing bread was a feminine action. So there are places in scripture that speak of God in feminine metaphors and even in feminine ways. But let's be honest, the majority language is male. And when you add that together with the troubled track record of the church, we might seem to have some problems here. So how are we to make sense of this? Well, I want to offer some solutions that I think are less than ideal, if I'm saying it delicately. Uh, one way to handle this is to, uh, well, sorry, I should say, let's go back to the Father, Son, Spirit language in the Apostles' Creed. I think that can help us focus this conversation. What do we do with Father in the Apostles' Creed? Well, one solution some have offered is to use symbols from nature. So instead of Father, Son, Spirit, you have spring, river, flowing water. Okay, I mean, I don't think that's a bad metaphor per se, but if we use that to replace the language we regularly speak of God, it runs the risk of making him too impersonal. A spring, a river, and flowing water doesn't love anyone, right? It's not personal. Or maybe you could say, instead of saying Father, Son, Spirit, you say Creator, Redeemer, sustainer. And those things are true of God, but here I think is the liability of that move. It names God by what he does in the world, not who he is in himself, right? It doesn't speak of God's very own inner life, only what he does in creation. And by the way, it also, uh, a creator, a redeemer, and a sustainer could be the force from Star Wars, it doesn't make him personal necessarily. See, here's the thing. Imagine the possibility, you with me, right? Imagine the possibility that God decided not to create anything and just exist as God. He could have done that, right? He has freedom. He doesn't have to create. Imagine that possibility. Would he be creator, sustainer, or redeemer, sustainer? Would those be true words of him in that scenario? 
No, because there's no creation. You with me? But would he still be Father, Son, Spirit? Yeah. There is a really important exercise in us regularly naming God in himself rather than God as he has acted in the world. Or maybe you could use genderless abstractions. Uh, God's self instead of him or he. Uh, parent, child, spirit. And maybe that could work. But that seems to make God even more distant and removed from us. Uh, frankly, uh, by making any of these moves, I worry that we cut ourselves off from our ancient tradition. I'd rather wrestle with it than throw it out. So how can we wrestle with it? What can we do? I want to suggest a way forward here. How can we call God Father and still insist that he is not male, he is not masculine, and still insist that woman, women and men are fully equal? Well, uh, you know, following many in the church tradition, including some modern scholars like Amy Peeler, who's a theology professor at Wheaton College, or Janet Soskett, who's a uh, theologian from the UK, uh, there's a way forward here. And I think we start, as, as Henry tipped us off to, we start with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Right. This is the full revelation of who God is. If you want to know, this is a basic Christian commitment we have. If you want to know who God is, what he's like, we look to Jesus. We look to him. And what does Jesus do? Well, he talks about his father. You know, it's something really interesting here. In the Old Testament, God is called father 11 times. And most of that is uh, this idea that God is the God of our fathers, sort of pointing to the way that God had worked in the uh, ancient Israelites' ancestors. Uh, there are some really quick passing metaphors where God is said to be the father of his people and that he formed the Israelites. Occasionally, God is the, the father metaphor is used for creation, but it's a really minor metaphor. It's not a main way of thinking about God at all. Just 11 times, and it's not really all that significant. It's one of many, many metaphors that are used to speak of God in these ways, as a creator or as the one who formed his people. Father's just not a big deal. Fatherhood is a minor metaphor. And even when it is used, it's kind of used in an adoptive sort of way, that I adopted you as my people in contradistinction to these pagan deities who literally fathered their people in sexual sorts of imagery is how they thought of it. So we don't have much of the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament. But when we get to Jesus, he describes God as father more than 170 times. And not only does he use the word father, he uh, uses also this domestic word, this familial word, this household word, Abba, as Henry said, when invoking God. Jesus calls God his father over and over. And not only does he speak of his relationship with his father, he invites us in to speak in those same ways. It really seems like something important is going on, something different. This kind of family relationship, sons and daughters of the father, is really quite new 
in what God had been doing in the world. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about his father and him being the son? You know, we say father because of the father's relationship with Jesus Christ, the son. And when we say that, it's not about gender, it's not about sexuality, it's a relational idea, and nothing more than that. And to understand that, we need to talk about God's very own inner life. We need to talk about the Trinity. What is God like in himself? Well, uh, we Christians insist that God is one God who exists as three persons. And the only difference between those persons is the relationship that they have. So let me explain what this means, because this might get a little technical, but it's really important here. What is God's inner life like? Apart from us, apart from anything, who is he in himself? Well, always, eternally, without beginning or end, without time, the first, shall we say, the first person fathers the son. Now, I know it's weird for me to use that as a verb, but run with me here. Uh, another word that's been used is begets the son, generates the son, replicates his full being and existence another time over and gives that existence to the son. And the son actively receives, uh, is sunned, if I can stretch the rules of grammar here, right? Is sunned. And this is not something that begins or ends. This is the way God always is. And that relationship between them makes them who there are. There is no father without the son. There is no son without the father. By the way, from that father and son, the spirit is said to be breathed. A different relationship of coming into existence. Now, we'll get to that later. Uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is this relationship between what we'll call the father and the son is one that transcends and predates any sort of creaturely reality of gender or sex or masculinity or anything like that. When we speak of the, when Jesus speaks of his father and him being the son, he's speaking of something bigger than his mission on earth, although it's related to it. He's speaking something bigger than him being born of the Virgin Mary, although it's definitely related to that. He's speaking about God's own inner life. So to speak of this relationship in God between father and son, the, the first person giving existence to the second person, generating, begetting, fathering, that relationship, very interestingly, in church history has been used, uh, has been spoken of with both fatherly and motherly language. So Clement of Alexandria portrays the logos, the word, the son, as the breast of the father. Definitely a feminine imagery there. Gregory of Nyssa thought of the first person in the Trinity as both the father and the mother of the groom. In the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, it says the son is, quote, begotten before the ages from the father in his divinity, end quote. That word begotten captures what either a mother or a father does in the procreating process. It's not gendered intentionally. 
Okay. So if we've got that clear, and I should stop. Someone asked me a question. I just dumped a lot on you. I'm not going to go on until someone asks me a question. <laughs> Say again, sorry. The, the version we have and we say was finalized in about 600 AD. It, it was in France, and it was, the, the history is a little spotty, um, exactly as to which. There wasn't a specific church or a community emerged out of that region. Um, but as I say, the, the bulk of it, the core of it, which we even heard read during the baptism ceremony I took you through, goes back to AD 200 or so. Uh, so th there were some revisions, a little bit of additions, but, but the heart of it goes back 1,800 years. Yeah, and we'll get to that in later weeks for sure. Uh, if, if you'll notice in our bulletin, Holy Catholic Church is lowercase c, and I got a little italics, and you go down and you find the, you know, clarifying sort of thing, sure. We'll, we'll definitely get to that. So I just have a totally dumb question. But so much of everything right now, and everybody's talking about phones and business, et cetera, and you're saying that a lot of it is the language that we want, such as things people don't know, uh, the pronouns that maybe the English language has, or something you have to rethink your mind going, okay, there's no basis in all the Yeah, no, it does. And, you know, we are in a situation in a cultural moment where uh, theological anthropology, that is, what does it mean to be human, is, is the hot, issue, the burning issues of our day, what be it gender or sexuality or aging or uh, eugenics or, I mean, this is, this is sort of the, the, the world we're in and it's an important thing. Uh, there are languages that don't have gendered pronouns, although most do historically. Uh, interestingly, Greek, which the New Testament was written in, had male, female, and neuter, a neutral pronoun as well. Um, I'm hesitant. You're definitely right that the language we use shapes the way we think. Absolutely. I'm hesitant to get too much theology out of a pronoun, right? Um, in fact, it, it, if you have other independent theological reason to think that maybe a pronoun could be a reinforcing bit of information, but it, it, it's a, it can't bear the weight of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, or if God is male, or uh, without gender, or beyond gender. Or, you know, it, it, pronouns take us a bit, uh, don't give us what we want in many of those questions. While we're on the topic, and very quickly, for those folks who feel deep and sincere tension between their lived experience and their bodies in terms of their gender and sex. I have a great deal of sympathy. You know, they didn't choose that. It, it, there's a lot we can say about it, but we start with sympathy. They're not making this up. Uh, it, it doesn't answer all the hard questions, but I think we Christians need to start with listening and, and compassion before fighting culture wars about it. But thank you. Uh, let's head back to 
God as male. Because it, it then we say, well, okay, if this relationship between the first person in the Trinity and the second uh, is not male and is not masculine, then why do we say father? Like, couldn't we replace the word father in the creed with the word mother? And interestingly here, and I should say I'm following the uh, argument of, as I mentioned her earlier, a theologian named Amy Peeler. Uh, she's got a brilliant book on this. Why don't we say God the mother with any regularity? Uh, we, we have those imageries in scripture, maternal or feminine imageries in scripture, but why don't we use the language of God the mother? Well, as I said, the first is the example of Jesus. We Christians start with the particularity of this guy, this Jewish carpenter from the first century, and he sets the example. And not only is he the example here, it's because of the incarnation of Jesus. See, in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, added human existence. He added flesh. And this is who God is revealed to us, Jesus Christ. And here's Peeler's argument. And how did he come about? Born of a woman. Born of the Virgin Mary. The early church had a controversy over this Greek word called theotakos, mother of God. Is Mary the mother of God? Well, in a sense, yes, at least in him becoming human, right? The mother of his humanity. The creed will talk about this later when it talks about born of the Virgin Mary, but this is an important point. A woman was used, her human contribution was fully part of the incarnation, right? Of our Lord taking on flesh. If anything might give full equality, dignity, and worth to women, if anything would tell Aristotle to shut up, <laughs> I think that might be it. So to speak of, sorry, hold on. Uh, so yes, God is a father, but God is not male. In the incarnation, and this is important, uh, Mary is not engaged sexually by the father. That was very different than many other common deities and uh, ways of thinking by the pagans at the time. Mary provides what a mother would normally bring to a new life, and God provides what a father would normally bring but not by acting as a male. Do you follow? Here we have a very important theological denial that God is male, that God is masculine. I mean, God could have uh, literally been the male in uh, impregnating Mary, but God could have been masculine by overpowering her, by subduing her. But instead, she gets a say. Instead, she receives this mission from her creator. So in short, one reason I think that Jesus doesn't call the first person of the Trinity mother is because he has a mother. Her name is Mary, and he loves her dearly. She served a very special role in the incarnation. And he is not ashamed to be born of a woman. A woman 
who, like all women, have full dignity and worth. And finally, I'm going to end our excursus here. For us and for our salvation, Jesus calls God my Father and your Father. He says that in the Gospel of John. He invites us to pray, our Father. He invites you to share in the fellowship that he has with the Father so that he can become your own Heavenly Father. In other words, because of our connection to the Son through the Incarnation, through Jesus Christ, we become adopted sons and daughters of the Father and are taken up into that inner life of God, into that love of the Trinity. We as creatures are brought up into that life and that love. And we're invited to do that as Jesus speaks of his Father, who, by the way, is not male nor masculine. How am I doing with time? I don't have my watch. Anyone? What time? Ten? I got ten minutes. All right, sit tight. Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Power is a difficult word for many of us. Uh, Power is the only God that many people in the world will serve. And when we talk of power, many people think of abuse, domination, control. The idea that God is all-powerful can put us on defensive sometimes. But the Christian view of power is different. The early Christians spoke of God as a breastfeeding mother, one who has the power to nourish her child. Uh, In Christianity, God's power is not about subduing us. It's about setting us free. His power is not just the solution to our problems when we get stuck in a jam. God's power is the reason that we even exist and there's a world at all. See, if God's power were not almighty, if God's power were only mighty, (laughs) uh, if he didn't have all the power, then he'd be limited. He'd be unpredictable. He wouldn't be worthy of our trust. He'd be like a Zeus or some pagan god, capricious and ignoring us. Other powers in the world don't threaten God's power. The power of the creator even gives power to creatures to have their own power. And it's not in competition. That is a uniquely Christian view. And because God is almighty, all-powerful, he can set us free. He can nurture us. And finally, creator of heaven and earth. I'm going to land this plane and we'll get done with the first section on time for our first session here. Uh, you got to enter into the philosophical and cultural world of the early Christians. Uh, they crafted this, these, this phrase, creator of heavens and earth, and spoke it over and over in baptism and in worship in a very hostile environment. Um, one school of thought said that the physical universe was created by a wicked and incompetent God. Uh, this school of thought said that the body is disgusting, procreating, bringing another human into this world. Well, that was a horrific thing to do. Uh, another similar school of thought is called Gnosticism. It teaches that they claim to have this secret knowledge about the world, this secret truth about the human soul. The prevailing idea, in in any case, is that the physical world is evil. It's unredeemable. you got to escape it. Your body's a cage, as Plato would say, right? 
set your mind, set your soul free. The material world is evil. Uh, in this cultural context, the creator was bad, and he made all this evil, bad matter. The redeemer is good, and he is spiritual, and will take you out of the material realm to a spiritual salvation. It's called Gnosticism, and I regret to inform you that that basic line of thinking, matter, bad, spirit, good, has infected the church a bit too much today even. But that's neither here nor there, because I'm running low on time. At any rate, the point is, this baptismal confession uh, is an act of Christian rebellion to that way of thinking. It, it says, contrary to these commonly accepted ideas, and contrary to the tremendous suffering and evil that we see, creation is good. The world is good. It was good from the beginning. And even though sin has entered it and it's gone wrong, it's still fundamentally good. This is a countercultural claim to say the world is good and the creator is good. That was a hard truth to say. Well, part of the appeal to Gnosticism is what's called the problem of evil. Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Why is there any at all? Well, the Gnostics would say, an evil God did it. <laughs> simple enough. But that makes things worse for us, as simple as that answer might be. Uh, if the Gnostics have it right, then there's no redemption for my body. The world is evil beyond repair. I have no home. I have no hope. But the early Christians proclaimed something radical. Creation is good. Which, by the way, was, I would say, even harder for them than us today. Uh, how should I say this? A, a, a lot of the rough edges of living in the material world, at least some of them, have been sanded off by medical advancements, technological progress, and I'm grateful for those things. But the world they lived in was harsher and deadlier than ours by, by a lot. And yet, even in that, they still proclaimed, the creator is good, this creation is fundamentally good. Because evil, according to Christian, the, the Christian way of thinking, is not a thing. And when it says creator of heaven and earth, it's saying he's good. He's saying uh, evil is a distortion of what is good. It's not a yin and the yang, it's not a symmetry here. God doesn't create evil. God doesn't create evil things. He only creates good things. Evil is when a good creature turns away from its own nature and purpose. So think about it. A guitar makes an evil sound when it's terribly out of tune. You've heard that. It's very not great. A parachute with a giant hole in it leads to an evil result. When something is not fulfilling its nature and purpose, its essence, that's what evil is. It's a deficiency. As the scriptures say, it's like darkness is to light. And moral evil, by the way, is us failing to obey our creator. We Christians insist that the creator is never evil, but sometimes his creatures are. Now, quickly, that leaves us with a problem. Evil is devastating. It's horrific. 
Why would God allow it? Why wouldn't he stop it if he's good and all-powerful? Well, that's called the problem of evil. I've taught a semester-long course on it in my tenure in academia. I don't intend to resolve it for you today in the next two minutes. <laughs> but I can say two things. Denying the goodness of the creator or the creation doesn't solve this problem. In fact, it probably makes it worse. And second, knowing what we know about God, perhaps we should consider the possibility that he has some good reason for allowing the evil that we experience, even if we don't know or can't even begin to understand what his reasons might be. Is he trustworthy? Takes us back to the creed, I believe. An act of allegiance, an act of faith, an act the church does, an act that Christians do. Thank you. I hope uh, this will be fruitful. I am excited about this series. I do realize I'm time crunched and I have a service in 30 minutes, so I'm going to very quickly scuttle off. But please come back next Sunday, uh, come with questions, and uh, we'll look forward to tackling the second section, at least part of it, I Believe in the Son. <laughs>